0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Right. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host Ted Rico. Got a great show for you tonight. This August 31st of 2017, the last day of August, and uh, we'll be heading into a new month uh, tomorrow. And uh, lots of great things uh, happening all around the golfing world. And uh, we're glad that you could join me tonight. Going to start off uh, with a great uh, Coach's Corner here in just a moment or two. Uh, and then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by my very special guest, Chris Chaya. He's a PJ professional and PJ uh, Teacher of the Year for South Florida and the Southeast Florida uh, PJ Teacher of the Year as well. Uh, he's going to be joining me on the second half of the show. Um, always glad for you guys to, to join here on the program. We are live every Thursday evening from 6 to 8 p.m. Central here on blogtalkradio.com network. Uh, again, quickest way to find us, go to blogtalkradio.com. Up in the search key, just type golf talk live and that will take you to the main page. Uh, and we, as I said, we are live on Thursday evenings from 6 to 8 Central. Um, but for some reason, if you're not able to join us, not to, to worry. Just go to that uh, link at any point after the show and just scroll down to the On Demand section, and you can check out all of the previously aired shows, including tonight's, uh, in their entirety. Uh, the recorded versions are all uh, stored there on that page. Um, and also, for those of you that maybe like to tune in uh, via a different media platform, such as iTunes uh, or Stitcher.com, Uh, Visit either of those, and under the podcast section, again, just type in Golf Talk Live, and you can listen through either of those uh, platforms as well uh, when it's uh, convenient for you. But again, thank you for joining us live tonight. Uh, If you're interested in calling in any time during the live broadcast on Thursdays, uh, you can do so. The number to call is area code 646-716-4667. Again, that number is 646-716-4667. Or you're certainly welcome to email me questions or comments about the show to Ted golf talk at gmail.com and also you can use that email if you're somebody in the golf profession you don't necessarily have to be a teaching pro or a coach you can maybe be an entrepreneur or somebody that's maybe created a great product or maybe written a great book uh, about golf that uh, you think would be worth sharing with the audience by all means please reach out and i'll do my best to uh, get you on the show uh, also uh, update social media every week on facebook.com uh, and also uh, on twitter my twitter handle is ted and buck ceo ceo of course in capital letters And also on LinkedIn.com under my personal profile, uh, Ted Odorico. So just go to any of those media platforms and you'll get updates uh, for the show, Golf Talk Live. And uh, as I said, thank you for for joining me. I'm going to introduce the guys here in just a a quick moment. But I wanted to give just a special announcement uh, in lieu of all that's been going on uh, in in the last uh, few days here in the news uh, with uh, some of the tragedy that's gone on out in the uh, southeastern part of the United States, particularly in Texas uh, and also Louisiana. Obviously, I'm sure by by now you're all familiar with what's gone on uh, with Hurricane Harvey and just uh, much. Uh uh, devastation and and uh, a lot of uh, just difficult times for for a lot of folks out there. First and foremost, I want to extend uh, heartfelt condolence to all of the uh, families out there who perhaps have lost a, a loved one during this tragedy, and also to those that maybe uh, have lost uh, some of their uh, property and, and others as well. Just our, our our thoughts and prayers are out with you uh, each and every day. And for those of you that maybe. Uh, have been listening to the media and thought, well, how can I help uh, some of the great folks out there? Uh, I'm going to make a suggestion, and the reason why I'm going to do it this way is, unfortunately, during some of these tragedies, uh, it, it it spawns uh, a lot of, um, shall we say, less than savory characters who like to take advantage of these situations. So I'm going to su- suggest if you do want to participate, that you do it in one of two ways. Reach out to your local Um, uh, counselors in your area in your region or maybe your churches in your area and ask how you can help many of them have have jumped on board and gotten involved and wanted to to reach out or uh, some of the more uh, uh, nationally recognized like the Red Cross uh, are certainly doing things as well but reach out to those organizations don't give through social media platforms um, just because I know some of them Uh, can be scams and have been proven to be scams over time. Uh, I don't know of any at this particular junction, but uh, just be extra cautious. So uh, do your due diligence before you give any uh, resources, particularly your financial resources, to help out. Make sure that you're dealing with a reputable organization. And as I said, the best way to do that is to reach out through your local church Uh, and or your local uh, government offices and find out where the best way that you can help. So uh, again, our thoughts and prayers with all the folks out there and Godspeed that everything uh, gets back to normal for you. Uh, I know it's been difficult and uh, you'll be in our thoughts and prayers over the next weeks and months to come. Um, As I mentioned, we're going to be starting off the show here with uh, Coach's Corner. And i got two great guys uh, on the show tonight. Uh, John Decker, of course, has been on the panel and also been a guest many times as well. And back again this week, of course, is Clint Wright. He stepped in last week uh, along with my good friend Pete Buchanan uh, when I had a couple of cancellations. So he's back uh, on his regular scheduled night, uh, which is this Thursday. So let me just tell you a little bit about the guys, and then we'll bring them on and start the discussion. Uh, John Decker, of course, he's uh, currently a teacher professional at the New Albany Country Club in New Albany, Ohio. Uh, In 2015, he was named the Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. Uh, Prior to that, of course, he was the head instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando, Florida, where he worked under uh, two top 100 instructors, Fred Griffin and Phil Rogers. Uh, He's also the author of a great book, Uh, Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game. And he's also now offering a new Bible study uh, with his book as well. And he's also been a motivational speaker for many, many uh, folks all over the United States. Uh, and just a great gentleman and honoured to have him on the show uh, here tonight uh, once again. Uh, And also my good friend Clint uh, Wright, as you know, he's been uh, jokingly been teasing him over the years as he's working from the back of the bus up to the front of the bus. Uh, He's a 30-year member of the PGA, uh, partner at TGM Golf, and a big proponent of the R3 approach, and one of the best, in my opinion, covering the short game today, just as a plethora of knowledge, Uh, plus one of my favourite guests and panelists here on The Coach's Corner. Uh, Guys, (laughs) welcome to the show, and uh, welcome to Coach's Corner.
0: Uh, Great to be here, Ted. Thanks.
2: Thank you, Ted, for having me. (coughs) Not a problem.
1: All right, guys, um, as I mentioned to you off uh, the air, what we're going to do tonight, since there's just the two of you here, makes it a little bit easier to do this platform. Uh, We're going to go through what we traditionally refer to as a three-hole playing lesson. I know you guys have probably done uh, something similar uh, in your teaching and and, uh, throughout your career. And I'm going to set some things up just a little bit to to make it fair. John, as I mentioned off air, we're going to start with you first here. So here's the scenario very quickly um, uh, as far as your players are concerned. Um, Again, this is a three-hole playing lesson. Uh, We're going to start with a par 5, a par 3, and then finish up with a par 4. Your player uh, handicap is going to range from 15 to 25. The reason why I'm doing a 10-point spread on your player is as we all know uh a lot of people are a little fuzzy with their handicaps uh, unless they've been playing for a length of time and we're going to treat this as somebody relatively new coming to your uh great facilities and uh so i want you just to to kind of have an idea that they could be closer to a 15 or they may be up uh to a 25 so we're just going to have that that uh spread if you will just to, to give yourself a little bit of a better understanding of the player um John, as I mentioned, we're going to start with you. We're going to start off with the par five. Uh, this is a 540-yard uh, par five. And uh, essentially, here's what's going to happen. Uh, on the tee box, your player hits a poor drive deep into the rough on the right-hand side of the fairway, leaving about 320 yards approximately to the green. In fact, he might even be OB. What's your player's next action or strategy to ensure a chance or certainly give a chance Uh, at maybe saving par. Um, What are your thoughts on that? And what would your next step uh, be, uh, given the information I've just given you? Okay.
2: Thank you, Ted. Um, And and his handicap,
1: could you tell me what his his handicap is? It just ranges in that range? Yes, it's going to range. Yeah, because, uh, again, you haven't been working with this particular player, so it's going to be a 15 to a 25. So you have to sort of factor in. It could be somewhere in the middle. It could be closer to 15, closer to 25. Right. Gotcha. Uh, the first thing I do is let's just say we'll kind of split the difference
2: and let's just say it's kind of like an 18. The first thing that I do yep. with any playing lesson is, is if I know their handicap, is I tell them, all right, you're on a par five, but this is not a par five for you. It's actually a par six because you're an 18 handicap. Mm-hmm. You're not a scratch golfer. So I would have that information already in his head before he's hit the shot. Uh, he's hit on a 540-yard hole, um, you know, having 320 yards. We've got to break this down into first of all getting back into play. That is our number one objective. And based on the fact that he's in heavy rough, he's going to need some sort of lofty club to get out. A lot of one of the biggest mistakes I see people make uh, when they hit a poor drive is they try to bite off more than they can chew. They try to make it up on their next shot. And I try to explain to them, you know, you've got anywhere from you know on this, in this case a par a par five. Uh, you know, you've got three to four more shots before you're actually going to be on the green. One of them is just getting back in play, assuming he can advance right. the ball forward at all. If there's anything in front of him, he might literally have to go sideways, and, and in some cases you have to go backwards. But the first thing I do is, is a lot of times I'll ask them before they've hit their shot, you know, where, what are you going to try to do here? I, like to, I don't give them any kind of heads up. And then as soon as they pull their hybrid or three wood out, that's when I kind of jump in there and say, okay, let's think about this. Uh, Let's try to find the the best gap uh, in the trees because we're in the trees, in the heavy rough. Let's try to find our widest opening to get the ball back into play and then then go from there.
1: Well said. Now, in the case – and, again, this is a playing lesson, so it's not an actual tournament situation uh, uh, or uh, uh, what I would classify as a legitimate round. But would you also – because I did make the point that he might have actually hit it OB – um, would you instruct him on about hitting a provisional just to be safe, even though I know it's a playing lesson just to get him in practice to doing that in a, in a real situation? Yes. And, you know, with playing lessons, one of the first things I'm basing it on is who's behind me.
2: You know, if there's a group's behind me and obviously, you know, sure. those types of things, So, but, but assuming that, that that's not an issue. Yes, absolutely. I would talk about the rules, you know, that, that ball, you know, we don't right. know whether that ball is inbounds or out of bounds and absolutely. Um, you know, I think every playing lesson I try to cover at least uh, one rule, especially with a mid-to-high handicapper, uh, you know, because I am amazed at how, how many people that I go out with in playing lessons, they don't know anything about the rules, and they end up costing themselves more strokes because they don't understand the the proper way to take, you know, relief from, uh, you know, a car path or how to, you know, when they hit the ball into a lateral right. water hazard. Uh, You know, their options, they have more than just taking two club links that they can, you know, there's all kind of, uh, you know, they have five options actually
1: in a lateral water hazard. So I make sure and cover all that as well yeah and and in a case obviously as you pointed out john where you might have uh, groups coming in behind during a playing lesson obviously you don't want to hold them up but just the fact that you mention uh uh, provisional and and understanding that that particular rule and what his options are is a good thing to ingrain into your student i I like your answer i think you had some some great points uh well done um you're going to have a little bit easier time yeah perfect Um, Clint, you're going to have a little bit easier time. Uh, Again, we're going to take the same par 5, 540 yards. Um, However, your player hits uh, one right down the middle, about 245 yards, uh, leaving just under about 300 uh, to make it home. Still a long stretch. What steps do you advise your player to give them the highest chance at par or even maybe a chance at birdie? What is your uh, approach to a player uh, at this
0: level? (coughs) Well... What I would be, you know, generally when I do a playing lesson, I like to talk more in kind of general terms or philosophy. Sure. Because like John was saying on where his player was at, you know, I'm going to try to get that player to understand that the philosophy is to not to allow one shot to multiply in, one bad shot to multiply into several more. Right. Like I said, get it back in play type thing. So what I'm going to look for is to talk to this person, not about a specific shot, but if you're here again, here's the theory and your thought process you need to use. Now, obviously, he's not going to get to the green in two. He's 300 right. yards out. Um, we really don't know right now, maybe is there there are cross bunkers or or anything like that that's up there in that, that range that we, we want to try to avoid. But let's assume right now that that there's nothing up there but maybe a couple of greenside bunkers that he's most likely not going to be able to get to. So what I right. want him to be able to do is, and this kind of goes back to what we talked about last week, what's his go-to third shot? What's, what's he the best at? Right. Does he have a good 75-yard shot, or has he got a good 50-yard shot? most likely he's out there at three hundred yards, he's not gonna be able to get it much closer than about hundred yards from the green. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, with a fairway wood. So I'm wanting him to try to get it into his go to shot that he's already hopefully we've we've taught him that already. And then I want right. him to hit second shot with his favorite club. Again, one and he knows he can move forward and keep it in play most of the time. You know, obviously we all hit bad shots But he needs to understand what his go-to third shot is. And what I want to kind of embed in his mind is, is when he gets here again and I'm not standing there, he then has the right thought process to try to figure out what to do. Well, I can't get there. I want to hit something in that range that I know I can be reasonably successful with to give me my best or at least the close to my best third shot into that green. So, Think about moving it forward in a safe manner and then play to that third shot again. Where's his go-to shot at? Now, assuming that we may have a couple of cross bunkers up there now, he's got to make a decision on whether to lay up short of them or try to go over them. So, obviously, then it would depend on how far away he is. Um, But as we all know, those cross bunkers at 75 or 80 yards out or maybe a little closer is one of the most difficult shots in the game. So yep. in that particular case, I would most likely encourage him that those cross-bunkers are right at his range of distance for his second-shot club to maybe back up and play short of him to be safe. Again, giving him yeah. the best shot option.
1: Yeah, and a great answer as well, Clint. You know, really, <laughs> I think what the message or theme, if you will, tonight um, that I really want to um, express to the listeners is not so much what you would do or what they should or shouldn't do, but to incorporate some strategy and thought into the process. And this is what you guys uh, really are here and and what we're trying to do on the Coach's Corner panel, is to make people think about um, and exercise a little bit of thought process before they just reach for a club or think about executing a specific shot. They need to look at all of the options, uh, obviously, um, you know, they have time restraints on a golf course they can't take forever. It's not like the lesson tee. Um, so they have to be um, well-informed uh, about the situation, but they also need to uh, be willing to, to step up there and execute whatever shot may be needed based on the information that they've uh, discovered. And this is really what your job as professionals going along with them on this three-hole playing lesson is to help sort of be that, that – Uh, voice if you will of of reason and rationality if you will um, to sort of bounce ideas and suggestions to help them learn and develop the skills that are going to help them uh, propel themselves a little bit better around the golf course so great job guys on the first one all right the next one john we're going to go back to you uh this is a par three uh it's a 179 yard par three uh, and I'm going to tell you a little bit of, uh, of the lay of the land, just to give you an idea. Uh, your, your player, first off, has not uh, hit anything yet, um, but here's what you're looking at. Uh, again, par 379 yards, deep bunkers uh, front, left, and right. So you've got deep bunkers in the front. The green slopes from front to back, with water running down the entire left side of the hole. The pin is cut back left, giving your players uh, handicap level uh, or range, if you will, what advice would you give for them to play this hole, knowing what trouble is surrounding, uh, potential trouble is surrounding, and given the fact that they are uh, certainly a mid- to high-handicap uh, player, what would you uh, start them off, and what would you advise them to do in a hole like this?
2: Just so I'm clear on this, the, the front of the green is the low point or the high point?
1: I was, the, the, you said it slows uh, from To front uh, to back, so it's the front of the green is the high point.
2: The
3: high point. Okay, and right. it's, so it's a going away from yeah, the and okay. Yeah, and it's
1: yeah, right, and it's protected with two deep bunkers uh, on both sides, uh, front left and, and front right. Front. Yeah. Well, that's a yeah, and the pin is cut. Yeah, pin is cut back left. Yeah, pin
3: is
2: cut yeah. back left. Well, the first thing I would tell him is that pin is invisible. That that pin, you don't even think about that pin. I said, a, a, you know, a tour player is not going to think about that pin really um because of the waters left and we have got to avoid the water the first thing i do is i i say where can we not go And the first place you cannot go on the golf course is out of bounds the second place you cannot go is the water and then the third place is going to be you know the between it would be the trees and then the bunker so i would say we've got to eliminate we have got to eliminate the water so the pins on the left we forget about the pin the fact that the, the, the green dynamics makes this very difficult because the first thing I would be telling him to do is he needs to club himself to the middle of the green um, because if he clubs himself to the front of the green, he brings both bunkers into play, and that's not going to be a good scenario for him um, you know, in that case. Um, so, you know, most likely a, a handicapped player that's, uh, that's in the 15 to 25 range from 179 yards I mean, a lot of people are going to be using hybrids. Uh, some people, fortunate, you know, if they happen to be a little longer hitter, then then they have a chance. But but my main focus would be to try to hit to try to carry the ball, to carry the ball to the middle to the middle of the green. Um, the 179 was that to the pin or was that to the middle of the green?
1: Middle of the you green. Said the,
2: Middle of the green. So that's that is, in that yeah. scenario right there, you know, I would be, you know, what is your 180 club? Let's just assume there's no wind. And let's try to hit the ball in the middle to even right, even if we have to miss it a little bit right. And if we hit on the green and we go through the green and we have, because of it, we're going to be hitting on a downslope, uh, then we just have to chip from there. And, and, you know, we can play from anywhere long and anywhere right. We cannot play from left and we, and, and short is no bargain either. So, um, you know, that would be a very, very challenging hole. If he is a really, really, really high handicapper, um, you would even consider, of course, if he's a real high handicapper, he would probably be playing from closer up. But, um, you know, based on the the bunkers and trying to thread it through those bunkers, that's a very difficult shot because, um, you know, a lot of times people who can't carry the ball that far, you might even consider some sort of layup, you know, uh, situation, and Mm -hmm. you don't, you know, uh, just to give them an opportunity. So that's, that, that, that would be a right. tough, well,
1: tough situation for anybody. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and, and the reason why I wanted to, to make some of the scenarios and, and Clint, I'm going to get to yours here in a second, because yours is going to be even different still, um, is unfortunately a lot of high handicappers with just some of the golf courses, some of the resorts out there that they might be playing, even some of the, uh, um, private clubs that, that uh, members play uh, can be very, very challenging uh, and have holes very similar to what we just uh, what was just described. And a lot of them really come at it with very little course management and figure, okay, well, it's 179 yards. I'm just going to pull out whatever club that hit that distance and kind of go for it despite all of the trouble way around. So they have to weigh their options. And, and you laid out some, some scenarios, uh, John, very, very well. Uh, I might even consider in addition to that, um, you know, you talked about maybe hitting more to the right side of the green. Uh, If there was a a large enough protected area to the right, even further still, I might even have them bail out uh, a little bit there because uh, again, with the bunkers in the front, they've got an open side from the right side of the green. And since the pin is in the back left uh, might give them a great opportunity for a a bump and run or a a chip shot uh, to the pin might not necessarily make par but it eliminates all of the trouble. So, uh, great, uh, great scenario, uh, John. Well, well done, um, Clint. Uh, I'm not letting you off the hook. We, we've got uh, we've got one for you as well. Uh, yours is a little bit shorter. Uh, yours is only 159 yards, uh, par three. Um, but yours is an island green with water surrounding the entire green. Uh, it's a two tiered green which slopes left to right, with a pin cut on the upper level, which is back right roughly about three feet from the fringe with a large bunker back right. Um, given your player's handicap level, uh, what advice would you give your player uh, to play this particular hole and uh, what are some of the options you might uh, present uh, for your player um, with this scenario? So, well, Where's the drop yeah, is on rain, that? green water.
0: Uh, <laughs> I would say probably... <laughs>
3: But that's what we need to uh, talk about
0: today <laughs> is the drop zone.
1: <laughs> Come on, Clint, be a little adventurous.
0: We'll 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 say that. <laughs> oh it, man, I, hate it. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but obviously, it's a very difficult hole. Oh, One fifty nine, uh, island green. It yeah. depends on how big the green is too, man. If it's uh, the seventeenth green sure. at, at the player, you know, at, at Sawgrass. Uh, if the green is kind of large, uh, we got some room you know, off the green a little bit. Again, here, I mean, you have to give the, the person a, an opportunity to try to figure out what to do. Um, <clears throat> we're hoping that he's got a good club for about 160. That's yeah. um, l- looking for that number. Uh, generally, probably what I would look to is to try to get a person to take a club that is his one – Maybe one sixty-five to one seventy club, and try to just hit maybe a little three-quarter kind of punch shot, a little three-quarter. Depends on what he's, you know, what we've been practicing. But I always like to to get a person to think about on these shots is try to hit a little bit of a cruiser type shot. We don't need a maximum mm-hmm. swing here. We need we need a little control, and go to. You know, I'm, I'm assuming they're, they're at their uh, handicap range here, they're probably going to hit a little fade or a little push, uh, generally speaking, right. for that level of player. It's to try to hit his cruiser shot in there uh, to not try to have to maximize or hit the perfect shot here. Um, it, yeah. It's very difficult. And, and obviously I'm going to get him to aim at the middle of the green because anything on top of the ground is going to be a good shot. Just aim at the yeah. middle of the green. Um, you know, the best – like John was saying, even on his scenario, the tour player is not even looking at that flag. I mean, it, it's just – you try to get it on, on the surface with, with your most comfortable shot that you're not going to have to press or swing hard with. And then try to chip and putt, see what you can do with it.
1: Yeah, uh, great answer, by the way. The reason why I wanted to do that scenario, um, Clint, is – and just a, just for an FYI, I actually originally headed at 193 yards, and I thought, no, I'm going to make it a little bit easier, because that, that would really be a push uh, for, oh, for any yeah. uh level of player, particularly high handicapper. So I thought, well, I'll ratchet it down to 159 right. for you. Um, the other factor that you have to consider, as I mentioned, it's a two-tier green, and, and obviously with the pin cut in the upper level uh, or upper tier, which is back right. Um, mm-hmm. One of the issues that you see with a lot of your high handicappers is they think figure they've got to make it up to that upper tier every time in order to give themselves a chance. And this is where the dangers come in because the, 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 pin, uh, again, they have a lot of green to work with. As you said, hitting it to the center of the green, even if they're on the lower tier, they can still have an opportunity, uh, to make par. And if they're really lucky, they might even, uh, tap one in or, or chip one in depending on where they, where they've, uh, sure. hit their, or made their miss, uh, might even, uh, hole out and get a birdie. Um, One of the things that I see, and we see this at at, at TPC Sawgrass all the time, obviously these are professionals, is trying to go for the pin sometimes uh, when it's on that upper tier, especially on Sunday. And a lot of times what you'll see is uh, they'll end up overcooking the shot and having to go, as you talked about, to that drop zone uh, more often than not, which can be even a little testy in in itself. So uh, I like the way that you really sort of gave an option of – not to even consider going for that pin to, to sort of block it out of their mind and shoot for the fat part of the green and uh, and and be a little bit more strategic in their thinking. And this is really what we want uh, our amateur golfers, especially high handicap golfers, because you know they're losing strokes all the time in their rounds by bad decisions. It's not so much their golf swing that's causing them to lose the strokes; it's their uh, their level of, of thought process going into the shots that they're making. And making poor choices that more often not cause them stroke. So I like the answers that both of you gave on your par threes, um, John. We're going to bounce it back to you, unless you, anybody else has another comment uh, or or question yeah, on that.
0: Just real briefly, one of the, and you're hitting on it quite well. One of the things that you see with, with this level player is it never crosses their mind to let their short game bail them out of a bad shot. Yeah. It, Never crosses their mind that they can get it up there around the green somewhere, chip and putt, and still make par. Because they never see that on television, hardly. The, where the tour players miss the green, they chip it up and tap it in for par. They don't see that very often. So they don't right. understand that even the best players in the world are doing that five or six times around. Uh, so that's my the point I try to make in some of my playlists. Obviously, is that hey you got a short game, you got a wedge and a putter for a reason. So rely on it.
1: Yeah, and and you're you're exactly right, Clint. And and this is again I can't emphasize enough. One of the problems I think for a lot of our high handicappers out there is they get into a mindset once they get out on the golf course on, on the practice tee, you know, they'll, they'll play around, they'll experiment, but then more often than not, they'll revert back to a lot of the mistakes that they've been making. Um, a lot of times we might give them uh, a situation in a playing lesson, like, like what we're talking about here tonight, but they'll revert back to some of the common flaws and mistakes that they've made because it's a comfort zone for them. They're not confident yet in trying some of the new things that we're talking about Um, so they'll revert back and and keep making those same mistakes, and that, of course, increases their level of frustration. So you're exactly right, Clint. They've got to trust. First, they've got to build a good, solid short game um, because the long game is not going to win the golf tournament. The short game is what's going to win it. So once they've worked and and built the confidence in a short game, if they, as in in the first uh, scenario that uh, John had, where they've hit it into the right rough, um, they're going to feel confident about getting, first and foremost, getting that ball back in play. Um, and not trying to you know, pull off a hero shot and go for 300-plus you know, uh, yards because most players, even most tour players, are not going to take that shot uh, unless they know for 100% certainty um, that they're going to get it within the distance they need to get it. So they need to sort of scratch that out of their thought process and go with the strengths that they know that they've built um, with their coach or their teaching professional uh, over the last uh, several lessons and so forth. So uh, great answer so far. Guys, um, you guys are just doing a phenomenal job. I knew this was the right panel to have uh, this particular discussion tonight. Um, John, this is the last one for you, but uh, we'll certainly carry on conversation afterwards. Um, this one now is, of course, a, a par 4, uh, 464 yards, uh, very long par 4 for many. Um, this particular hole, the water intersects, Uh, the fairway so in other words it runs all the way across uh, the middle of the fairway uh, needing a stiff 240 yard drive to carry the water Uh, your player again given their skill level is unsure whether to attempt the carry or lay up Um, explain the options um, on either scenario again given your your player's skill level um, some of the options that you would suggest and why you would suggest them
2: well, the first thing is, is I would I would re, I would emphasize to my student that he is not he or she is not on a par four. They are on a par five because at their handicap level, right. they get one shot per. So this is a par five. So basically, what I say to them is is as I would convince them, unless they have just a tremendous breeze behind them, or if it's an elevated tee and it's downhill, or things like that, unless it's something or they're an unusually long hitter, I'm going to try to convince them in this situation to lay up. Um, and the way I look right. at it is, is let's go ahead and we hit a 200 – let's just say we hit a 230-yard shot. That's going to leave us 234 yards to the hole. And then basically I say to him, there the shot that I gave you on the tee, you just used. So now – you're playing a 234-yard par-4. That's what I try to emphasize to them. So that it's almost like they, they get to move up to there, and then, you know, from there they can go on. And I think, I you know, if you go to anyone that's a 15 to 25 handicapper and you tell them you're going to play a 234-yard par-4, uh, they're going to feel pretty good about themselves. They're going to feel like, you know what, I yep. can handle that. I might I might even make a birdie. So, um, you know, that's, right. the way I, that's the way I approach the mentality. The second thing that I wanted to say, and I meant to say this in the first scenario, is the I see so many people who have pretty good golf swings on the driving range, and then I go out with them on the golf course, and they make some of the worst decisions I've ever seen. And so what I really yep. emphasize to the students is the most important decision that you will make on the golf course is the decision that you make after you hit a bad shot. So anytime you hit a bad shot, whether it's out of bounds, whether it's in the water, when you, ha- you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. Usually it's dealing with trees and bunkers and things like that. And so what most people instinctively do when they're given that decision is they try to make it up, and I try to emphasize more along the conservative route and playing to their par, playing to the par that they have. And, and so, um, you know, if they're a 36 handicapper, I tell them, you got two shots on this hole. So, so what if you hit a bad shot? Get it back in the fairway and you're all square. So I think that the decisions, um, and this is really what this conversation is more about than technique or things like that, is something right. that people exactly. never consider. And, and I really encourage the listeners out there to, to, to take a playing lesson. If you can take, uh, you know, don't just go to the, to the driving range. Every single lesson – and and when, when you're taking lessons and do full swing lessons, or go to every single lesson and do short game lessons, go and take a playing lesson. It doesn't have to be three or four hour playing lesson. You can go. I do a lot of one hour playing lessons. We'll go out and just and I'll give them scenarios and we'll hit some shots and we'll work on whatever they're strong or or excuse me whatever they're weak at uh, or they're having trouble with. But I think that um, the the people and I think Clint was uh, exactly right when he was talking about the short game. The average golfer, if they could walk along with a tour player and a caddy in a practice round, the average golfer would be amazed at how often the tour player plays away from pins. They do not go directly at every pin. And they have the ability to pull off any pin, you know, any shot out there, but they don't do it because they're smart enough to know that, hey, that that pin, if I go at that pin and I make just the slightest mistake, I'm going to make a double bogey. And so I'm going to play away from that pin. And then when they get in pins and and on the par 5s, they take they take advantage of the par 5s. They 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 um, get the ball on the green in the par 3s and you know, um when they get on the shorter par 4s, that's where they take advantage and get their birdies. But the average golfer thinks that they've got to go at the pin on every single shot, and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes they can make.
1: Yeah, and I think what a lot of it is is or well, a couple of things. You're you're exactly right, well said by the way, John. Um, is I think with, with you know, our, our, our professional players, you know, there's a lot on the line. Um, you know, a putt, uh, a, a bad shot can literally cost them tens of thousands, in some cases maybe even $100,000. And I know it's not all about the money, but the point is there's, uh, there's a consequence for their actions. So for them to be sort of a knee-jerk reaction every time they hit a bad shot without putting some thought and process into what their going to next shot is going to be, you're exactly right. Um, could cost them uh, number one, the tournament, but could also cost them, uh, a substantial amount of money, uh, in, in potential purse money. So, um, they're going to use the skills that they've learned through their, um, journey, if you will, getting to the PGA or LPGA tour, whichever tour they're on, um, and they're going to use that experience, and you're right, they're not going to go at every pin. There might be certain um, scenarios where uh, it's a very receptive pin and they know that the, the dangers are, are level is very low, um, and they're going to take chances on those holes. But where they know that there's a high uh, risk and low reward, they're certainly not going to be aggressive on those particular holes. And you're right, I think it would be great. I wish that more of the um, tour. of, would go back to what we used to see a little bit on the golf channel uh, is where they would actually walk around and talk about what we're talking about here tonight uh, through yeah. some of their cameos and said so just to, you know and because if you remember going back a, a number of years ago they used to do more of that they used to get some of the pros that would come up and they would talk about what they would do in situations much like what what you're talking about here tonight. Um, well said, by the way, John. Clint, um, yours a little bit different again. Uh, always got to mix it up for you, my friend. Um, no problem. This is a par four as well for you, uh, 453 yards, a little bit shorter, uh, but a strong dog leg left, needing a draw to get in a good position. Uh, your player's normal ball flight, however, is a fade, uh, making this hole not really fitting to their eye. Uh, let's talk about some options that you might recommend for this player and why.
0: Okay, let me before we get into that, let me throw this out to you. It's real simple. You talking about the the tour players? Mm-hmm. They call them tour players. They don't call them tour hitters. Right. These guys are players. They play the game, and they understand mm-hmm. that that hitting a golf ball is simply part of the game. It's not the whole game. And so they they build their their techniques and their ability around playing the game. And, and yep. that's where we, as instructors, and I think John does this because he. He's saying exactly the same thing I'm saying, just with just a little bit different, uh, you know, terms. I'm a conservative player. I tell, hey, get it back in play. 100 percent success. That's conservative. But if you if we start talking and telling people, hey, you don't you want to be a player, not a hitter. Then we can start developing their ability and techniques around how they can play. And that's what we're talking about with the scenario. I got a guy that's going to that plays a fade all day. How far is it to Mm -hmm. the dog leg? Um,
1: What did I say? It was 453, probably about 210 to to
0: 220. Okay. Then this guy right here, if he he takes his driver and tries to hit a draw around that corner, he's most likely not going to hit a good shot. Every now and then he might pull it off, but most likely he's going to hit a pull, and it's going to be in the tree. Um, so, we're going to try to avoid that shot. So, and if he also hits his driver and hits his normal shot pattern here, that once the ball reaches its kind of the apex of his flight and starts moving to the right, he's actually adding yards to his second shot because the ball now is moving away from the green, not towards right. it. Right. So, what I want him to be able to do is take his three-wood or whatever he can hit, 210, to 215, and hit it down the middle, uh, down the left to the middle of the fairway. Because he's going to hit that club probably straighter than he would his driver. He's not going to get as much of a fade or as much spin out of that particular club than he would his flatter face driver. So even if he hits his normal cut, he's not going to be losing yardage based on the cut for his second shot. So I'm going to want them to understand that when that ball's curving and moving, they're adding yards. So even if he hits his driver and blows it you know, kind of through the dog leg, he's still adding yards to his second shot. What I want him to do here is to try to get as short a second shot as he can, but he's got to clear the corner to have an open pass at it. So I'm going to get him to hit something uh, that's got a little more loft on it, take some of the side spin off, get it to the dog leg, and, and hopefully get the shortest shot he can into the green. Yeah. Uh, and
1: and I agree exactly with that scenario. You're exactly right. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I like this uh, this particular scenario, uh, Clinton. One of the reasons why I wanted to, to give this to you because I knew essentially this was going to be your answer. Um, but also, it kind of brings into play what what Nicholas often talked about throughout his career, and and particularly in in some of the videos that he did uh, when he made his video uh, golf hmm. my way. You right. know, he, he talked about how. When he was playing a hole that didn't fit his eye, he didn't try to adapt. In other words, you know, he didn't try to hit a a draw into a right-to-left hole if he wasn't confident. So he would play to his strengths, not the hole itself. And if he walked away with a par, great. If he walked away even with a bogey, he was still relatively happy because he knew that he was playing to his strengths and not to the whole. Um, one of the big mistakes that I see, and, and again, the, the scenarios, I understand they're very generic and very general. It was just to give right. you guys a bit of a guideline. One of the things that I see on a, an example like this, John, you uh, by all means jump in as well uh, once I finish here, but um, is they'll try to cut the dog leg. You know, they figure, well, I can probably get over those trees or, or whatever other obstacle may be there. Mm-hmm. So they're going to try and cut the dog leg and, Going to your point, Clint, even if they manage to cut some of it off, again, with that uh, left-to-right ball flight, they're still going to be adding yards to the second shot. So it's not really going to right. do them justice. And if they don't happen to execute the shot correctly, there's a multitude of scenarios that can happen. They can either hit a tree uh, or pull it, as you said, and into the woods. Now they've got a whole different scenario that they've got to deal with instead of um, you know being out in the fairway somewhere. So I like the idea that you know, sometimes you have to ratchet it back a little bit and not necessarily pull out the driver, pull out a club, as you said, that's going to take a little bit of the spin off of it and keep you in play. The, the, really the point, and John, I'm sure you would probably agree with this, is let's keep the ball in play wherever yeah. and whenever possible and and not take unnecessary risks. And you're exactly right, and right in your point earlier, John, uh, a few moments ago that you said the purpose of this conversation tonight is not about technique, it's not about ball flight, it's not about any of these things that we uh, talk about in the business, it's really about strategy and really about the mental process that a player has uh, he or she has out on the golf course and you're exactly right, when you get out and you see um, how, you know if you've ever had the opportunity to play in a pro-am for those of you listening to the show, you'll understand what what, uh, the guys are talking about if you watch how the pros sort of formulate their game plan um, throughout whatever scenario they may be faced with, they're not going at every pin. They're not hitting, uh, you know, every drive 300 plus yards. They're using some strategy in course management route, the course, uh, course to give themselves the best opportunity to execute whatever plan they may or have for that particular hole. Um, and that's really what it's all about. And that's what why I want to have this discussion tonight. So guys, um, jump in with any further thoughts, uh, John, anything that you want to add? Yeah, I do.
2: I want to kind of allude on what Clint was talking about with the club selection to the dog leg because I actually wrote about this in my book. Uh, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Bob Sowards, uh, and I still work with him. Uh, and, in 2008, I mean, Bob was a club professional that qualified for the PGA Tour through tour school, um, and, um, and, and we were uh, in Greensboro at Sedgefield, and, um, and Bob, during the practice run, I flew down there, and we were walking the course, and Bob told me, Bob likes to cut, it, cut the driver. He likes to play a fade with everything. And he said, you know, I really don't like this course because it's a hooker's golf course. And I had a long talk with yep. him about what we're talking about. I said, you know, I, don't, I said, when the, ball, when the hole is going left to right, you can hit your driver all day long. But when that hole is going right to left, you're going to hit your three wood. And he said, even if the hole is 500 yards, which number 14 there is, is over 500 yards. And I said, yes, I said, yes, you, you hit your three wood. And that was his best tournament of the year. He came in ninth place and we talked, wow. I mean, he came back when we were, when he came back, I saw him a couple of days after the tournament. Cause I followed him. I was down there pretty much the whole week. And, and he gave me a big hug, and we were talking, and he said, you know, he he just changed his mindset on how he – just because it's a long hole, if the hole doesn't fit your eye, you can't give – you can't – you don't get to change the hole. You've got to play the hole that's in front of you. Go with the shot. It was much easier for him to draw a three-wood. He could, he could hit his shot exactly like Clint was saying. He could start his ball, and he, and he could work – I always want the ball to work with the hole. I never want the ball to work against the hole. Uh, especially on a tee shot at least and so that was a very eye-opening uh for him and since then I see and this is not some something I came up with this is how Jack Nicklaus won 18 majors is with that with that strategy yep. and that's what I tried to pass on to him and and I think it opened his eyes that he didn't have to hit driver on every single hole and and he uh had his best week ever
1: yeah and that and that's a great uh a great story <clears throat> to share and, and that just sort of uh, really hammers the point home. And you're exactly right. That's how Jack Nicholas won 18 uh, major tournaments and a whole plethora of other uh, tournaments along the way. Um, and actually, there was a point in his career, um, and, and the, mem- uh, the name escapes me, but he actually um, obviously worked many, many years with Jack Grout. But uh, there was another gentleman that, that came somewhere in, in Jack's uh, earlier part of his career and tried to get him to draw the ball. And he tried that for, I think it was about a year and just did terrible, uh, just couldn't put anything together. So he went back to uh, what he knew and what he knew his strengths were. And of course the rest is history. And, you know, the point I'm making, I guess, folks is this, we're not here to teach you just how to hit the ball. Obviously we want you to, to learn the fundamentals and, and learn the basics of, of the golf swing but we're here to teach you how to play the game to get enjoyment out of it. And, you know, one of the worst things I hear people saying all the time, you know, I work with a lot of corporate types, and they come up and say, well, I want to hit the ball better. You know, I'm not scoring very well. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not hitting very well. Um, teach me how to hit the ball better. And I can certainly do that, but it goes to your point, Clint, if they don't know how to play the game and use some strategy along the way, they can be the best ball striker that ever lived. But if they don't understand how to play the game uh, and, and work through uh, the different scenarios that we're talking about, then it's not going to matter. I mean, how, there's a lot of great hitters on the PGA Tour and, and LPGA Tour that don't win week in, week out, that don't win tournaments at all. So we know it's not a hitting factor. Um, am I right, Clint?
0: Yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, you, obviously part of the of the game is you have to hit the ball. I mean, obviously – and we sure. all strive to be as good a ball striker as we can. The, the most important thing I think John was alluding to in you as well is we all have those tendencies that we do. we we got people that cut the ball. we got people that hook the ball. You know, so and with the new clubs and the ball, I mean, it's getting harder and harder. People hit it a little straighter than they used to. And so what you have to understand is when you make the swing you can make, whatever it is, what and I think Nicholas did this, I, I can repeat this body motion pretty easily, yep. Trevino, the same way. I can make this body motion every time. So when I do this, what does the ball do? Does it hook? Does it fade? Does it go straight? And you have to then not worry about what the ball looks like, but can you make that body move more often than not, and then you have to play the results. Of that body motion, so that's what Nicholas did. Hey, I can make my body do this every time, or close to, and when I do, the ball goes out there and goes left or right. So I'm going to play that shot every time I can. Um yeah. So I think as far as the ball striking, what I've always used to do is try to get a person, try to find what their body's capable of, and then work a technique into it if you can. Be fundamentally sound with it. And then it's sure. kind of that thing. you, you got to dance with who you brung to the dance. I mean, if that ball goes out right. there and cuts every time, man, guess what? There ain't nothing on the left side of this golf course you got to worry about. And right. <laughs> uh, we all know that when you got a one-way miss, you're a player.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah, you're right. You know,
0: when you got a two-way miss, you're you're just trying to hit it. You know, so. But here's the other thing I want to throw out there. Now, John and I both Mm -hmm. and Ted, you the same way. We want people to play conservative, keep it in play. But every now and then, I think you just leave the scorecard in the clubhouse and you take every risky shot you can take. You have to find out what you can do and what you can't do. So every now and then, with an old water ball, you need to try to get it across that 240-yard drive. Maybe try to hook it around the corner. If nothing else to prove to yourself you really can't do that. <laughs> you know to know yep, know what yep. you can and what you can't do. <laughs> and uh but and but don't keep score that day. Go out and just try to to do the best you can with those risky shots just to see. I mean you got to know how big a hole you need to hit it through. What your talent level is. Yep. And with the scenario you gave us, I think we would try to get those people to be more conservative on a regular basis. Sure. Every now and then, you know, it's it's like we talk a lot when we're playing, you know, we're, what you're going to do. So, well, my mama didn't send me out here to lay up today. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm going to take a <laughs> shot at it. You know? Um, but some days you got to lay up, but some days you may just want to feel like see if you can do it or not. I think that's part of the excitement of the game. Uh, it's just to yeah, see what is- you really can do. You know, so – but yeah. but you're you're absolutely correct. I, I think that if we can get play, people to understand that ball striking is important, but it's really not the entire game, uh, then we're then we're making some progress if we can do that.
1: Yeah, and and On the, you know we've talked about this. Sorry, go ahead, John. Yep,
2: go ahead. Well, I, I was just gonna. I'm sorry. On the flip side, another great way with playing lessons is to do the complete opposite of that. Uh, a lot of times. I'll take people, and, um, you know, especially we do this with our juniors a lot, is I'll take them up to the forward tees, to the fir- first tee. And, and because then they, the first thing that comes out, oh, man, well, this hole is a lot easier now. And they, and they start, but but it's amazing when you move people up to the front tees, a lot of them, their scores don't go down. And That's so right. you, can, you can really emphasize to them, because they, what that allows them to do is it's, is especially if they're a better player, a 15 handicapper. if you move them up to the front tees, all of a sudden they're licking their chops. And so it really emphasizes to most of them that their short games are not good enough. And the reason that they're a 15 handicap or a 17 handicap or a 25 handicap is not the fact that they don't hit the ball far enough. It's the fact that they don't have a good enough short game from 30 yards and in because they still got to get the ball in the hole, even if you move them up. So I think that's another way, and you can do that in a playing lesson, maybe on one hole, you know, you move them way up and say, all right, let's see how good you are now. And, and a lot of times they'll come out, they'll come away with the same score. Heck, I've done that before and I'll go out and play and think it's going to be easy. And I'm standing there on forward tees. I can't hit driver anymore because if I do, I, I got no, nowhere to hit it. So I've got to, I've got to hit it like a five iron off the tee, and I hit the five iron off the tee, and I'm right where I would be if I hit the driver from the black tee. So it really emphasizes the short game to your students, and I love doing that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah, I think it's smart. In fact, I, I think really um, it would be a smart move for any teaching professional that uh, not only might be listening tonight but uh, that's out there, and I'm sure many of them do it already, uh, is – you know, especially early on with students uh, for their first maybe playing lesson, move them up, move them up, forget, you know, forget what tees they normally play, move them up and start the playing lesson right there. As you said, John, I think that's a great way just to get them to, again, think a little bit differently and view the golf course from a different angle than what they might normally do or different position. Uh, And then, you know, maybe gradually work them back to wherever they normally hit from. But they'll certainly be a little bit, uh, certainly much more confident that way as well. And it gives them pause to think and say, you know what, I have other options um, in in playing my game. And, uh, you know, I don't always have to play from this tee. And I think just letting people see what some of their options are, um, you know, really it it boils down to this, is Nicholas didn't, uh, and, and Hogan and many of the other greats that have come along, didn't win golf tournaments based on their good shots. It's how they handled themselves after the bad shots. That's what makes a true champion. And that goes with Nicholas, that goes with Tiger Woods, uh, and and all the great ladies uh, as well on the LPGA. It wasn't their good shots that won them the golf tournament. It's how they handled themselves on the golf course when the shots weren't as good. And uh, we've seen that time and time again. And I wish – as you point out, John, earlier, I wish that uh, you know when we watch some of these televised um, tournaments that we would get to see more of that. I mean, every once in a while they'll throw one in there if somebody hits uh, or mm-hmm. is playing a bad hole. But um, And I understand why they do it, but uh, again, it, it doesn't do the game justice uh, if the amateurs are not seeing a true depiction of the game uh, week in week out. So that's why I would like to see more playing lessons uh, back on uh, the Golf Channel and other uh, medium forums where they're seeing more of the core strategy and not just everything perfect every time. Because as, as you can attest to John and Clint and, and others out there that might uh, have actually been out there and tested their metal. Um, it's not perfect every time. There's going to be more bad shots and there are good shots. Even Hogan said that uh, in statements over the years. So um, speaking of testing metal, boy, you guys did a fantastic job tonight. Uh, I knew you would. And uh, I want to thank you for, for doing a great job, John. I know uh, you've been traveling around, doing uh, a lot of great things, uh, talking to different folks around the country um, about a lot of things and obviously uh, a lot of book signings along the way. Give us an update on the book, What's what's been happening there, and um, anything that you want to uh, share with the audience. Well, thank you, Ted,
2: for having me on the show, and Clint, I, as always, I enjoy being with you. Yeah, um, I learn something every time I listen to you as well. Um, <laughs> the the uh, I've been uh, I have been traveling. I'm back in Ohio now. I'm going to be closing out the season up here uh teaching, but I'm going to I've got a Bible a Bible study and some book signings in North Carolina in October. I just recently uh did a radio interview that was taped in uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, and I am praying for those people uh because I don't know yes. um, how
3: they're how
2: they're doing right now. Uh, But they want me to come down, and um, and there's going to be several churches, and they want me to come down and and do some speaking and maybe put together a clinic. But who knows? uh, We'll just have to see how all that works out. But I'll be saying a prayer for them. But um, the book is done very well, Uh, but I I truly uh, miss teaching. Uh, I had a fantastic uh, uh, conversation today with a guy from the FCA, and uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes is where – um, I'm going to hopefully uh, be speaking there as well with that group, and I think my mm-hmm. book would fit along in that that form very well. But if people, uh, the listeners out there, would like to um, get information on the book, or if they would like to see um, any of my golf videos, uh, my my website is johndeckergolf.com, uh, and, and um, they, they can go on there. I've got I, I just put up another video today. Uh, I just did a video today, which was fun to do. Uh, you can also follow me on Facebook, Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Um, I'm on all those social media platforms. Uh, and, again, I spell my name J-O-N, so it's johndeckergolf.com. Check out the website and um, and the videos. Just go into the library section, and you, they'll uh, prompt you to the videos.
1: Perfect. Well, John, thank you as always for for coming on the Coach's Corner panel and and being a guest uh, on Golf Talk Live. I, I enjoy having you as well. You've been yeah, can great. I
3: say one, one uh, great
1: panelist. Uh, one can? other yeah. thing, real quick?
2: Uh, Chris Chai, uh, yep. your your guest coming up. I I went to East Carolina with Chris. Chris was a senior my freshman year, and I actually got cut from the golf team. And he actually gave me uh, lessons uh, before he was one. He he helped me out there uh when I was struggling as a as a freshman. So um I just tell Chris I said hello.
1: I will certainly do that, my friend. Um Clint, go ahead. Uh let the folks uh know what uh where they can reach you and or how they can get a hold of you and anything else that you want to share as well.
0: Well obviously I'd like to thank John. I mean we all learn you know I learned a lot last week I mean you know from our conversation and, <laughs> and we always do but a um, little new information, they can get uh, anything that they, um, information about me or what we're doing for videos and things at upstategolfmarketing.com. If they go to that website, everything's right there for them, okay? Um, about me, Mike Lawrence, Todd Ellison, Scott Womble, our entire, um, you know, R3 and TGM Golf Academy staff, uh, all that information is right there. And they're they're obviously... a uh, a great wealth of, uh, information. I think that, uh, Todd is the youngest in that group, and I think he's 47 or 48, whereas the rest of us are in our fifties and sixties. So we, we kind of, you know, kind of like that farmer's commercial. We, we've seen that, so we kind of <laughs> know what to do about it. But, um, it's always fun to be on the show. You know, I enjoy it. I do it anytime you ask me to. And, and, um, hopefully people, begin to understand it's about playing versus hitting and, and uh, we get more people out playing golf. Well, I think we, we move that
1: needle just a little bit further uh, along uh, with today's coach's corner guys. So, again, thank you always uh, for helping out. I appreciate you giving of your time and I look forward to both of you joining me again on a future one. So uh, God bless to both of you and have a great weekend and I'll see you guys next time on Coach's corner. All
0: right, uh, John, have a good weekend. You as well. Thank you, guys. Yeah, see ya.
1: All right. That was the Coach's Corner panel, John Decker and Clint Wright. Uh, great job tonight. Um, and as John had alluded to, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, a little intro of a uh, uh, buddy of his uh, is going to be a guest coming up here in just a moment. Uh, but let me just tell you a little bit about uh, Chris Chaya. Uh, he's a PGA professional, and uh, he was also the PGA Teacher of the Year for South Florida section and the Southeast Florida section. Uh, PGA Teacher of the Year as well, originally from uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, Connecticut, uh, but he relocated to Florida in 1990, and for the past 23 years has been living the dream, as he says, at uh, Boca West uh, Country Club as their head uh, golf pro. Uh, He was uh, captivated with the sport since childhood, watching some of his favorite pros like Nicholas, Trevino, and Stewart. Uh, His personal instruction, of course, was taught by Billy Mitchell and Jim McLean. And from student to master, Chris uh, received the coveted award, as I mentioned, as South Florida 2010 P- PGA Teacher of the Year. And uh, he was also named the 2009 Southeast Chapter PGA Teacher of the Year. Uh, as a graduate, of, as John Decker had just mentioned, of East Carolina University, he's also been one of the top playing PGA professionals in South Florida. Uh, as a PGA professional, Chris uh, won numerous chapter and section PGA events and played in three national club uh, professional championships and was a member of three South Florida uh, section PJ cup teams. And uh, besides golf, he also spends a significant amount of his time involved in a number of national and community charities. So always uh, glad to give back. And without any further ado, let me welcome my very special guest this evening, PJ professional, Chris Chaya.
3: Chris, uh, welcome thank to the you, show. Uh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Uh, Congratulations on the show. Uh, it's really great. And I appreciate the invite. I'm looking forward to talking golf with you. And uh, as a PGA pro, uh, we do a lot of, uh, we spend our, most of our time during the days playing and teaching golf and talking golf with our members and guests. So it's, uh, it's always a lot of fun to carry that into the evening and spend time with you and, and uh, continue the conversation on this great game.
1: Perfect. Well, Chris, let me just first off uh, say, I don't know when you jumped on board here, if you heard this or not, but John uh, Decker wanted me to reach out and say hello. Of course, you both uh, knew one another when you were uh, back in university. Um, I think he said you were a senior at the time when he was uh, first attending. So uh, you've got some commonality there. Um, Chris, I want to just uh, jump back just a little bit. Uh, I know we talked a little bit about um, what really sort of, brought the interest of the of the game or the sport to you as a, as a young child. Of course, much like myself, watching great players like Nicholas and Trevino and many of the other greats, of course, uh, the late uh, Arnold Palmer. Um, but tell us a little bit about your background. What were some of your earliest memories of golf?
3: Well, I was very fortunate to grow up in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut. My, my father was a headmaster, and he was uh, w- working a job in a, as a headmaster in Greenwich, Connecticut, so we, we moved there, and, and I actually grew up uh, right on MS golf uh, club. So at an early age, uh, I started, uh, started in the game at, and at the caddy and and was exposed to it early on. And it in a really great golf area, Greenwich, Connecticut, there were nine, uh, private clubs and a public course. So, uh, that was my first exposure to the game. It was literally in my backyard, the 15th hole of uh, NSR golf club. So from there, wow. Uh, You know, I played in in junior high and high school, state champion twice at Greenwich High School. We had a very strong team. And um, really what what got my interest also as far as professional golf was the Westchester Classic. I used to watch that every year and follow uh, Mm -hmm. Ben Crenshaw and Johnny Miller and and Trevino and and the guys. And and that was really one of the things that... uh, Inspired me to to really pursue the game and, and try to be the best uh, that I could be. And and as a junior, when I uh, was runner up in the Metropolitan Junior Championship, I, I kind of figured maybe I had a shot at this uh, to play collegiately. And, and had a very good amateur career up in in the Met section, which was the you know the MGA uh, did such a great job with with junior golf and, and tournaments that uh, I really. Uh, did quite well as a junior and then i uh, went on with a full scholarship at east carolina uh, and played uh you know division one golf there which was which was fantastic and that's again how I, how I old o-
1: right how old were you roughly when you first started swinging a golf club what what age range were you in
3: i think i was about 10 years old 10 11 when i started and then uh when i was 13 14 uh, i started caddying every summer and my parents didn't golf but from you know a caddy as a, as a in a junior golfer that was really my my uh my exposure to the game do you and, think uh, that mitchell, and obviously we're, there we're, are go ahead go ahead sorry oh i was saying billy mitchell was the was the pj uh, the head professional at NSR garden golf club and and uh, he really did quite a bit to uh, to help me out with the, with the game and teach me the game and and that, that was really my first uh coaching that I received you know it's an informal coaching but it was it was very uh good he was very good with the fundamentals of golf and I really uh it helped my game quite a bit as a junior
1: you know, it's interesting because there's, there's so many different stories that we hear, and, and obviously doing this program allows me the opportunity to talk with so many great professionals like yourself, Chris, and and there's just such a, a, a variety of, of stories. Um, you know, you started fairly young, you know, about 10 years old uh, in that range when you first sort of first sort of picked up a golf club and started playing. Some started maybe a little bit earlier. Um, some maybe didn't start until a little bit later. So there's a, a pretty broad range, if you will, of, of how people got introduced to the game. But one of the things that always – um, interests me and, and, and i 'm sure you can probably relate to this is you know when we watched some of these greats in, in earlier times, like a Nicholas or a Trevino and many of the others uh, that were out there and johnny millers and, and that, um, there was just sort of an, an aura about them, um, you know watching them how they thought their way around the golf course, how they handled certain situations. We used to see a lot more of that than what we do now, of course, everything uh, you know, with editing and so forth. Uh, we don't, as we talked about in the panel discussion, the guys and I, just a few minutes ago, you know, we don't get to see a lot of the bad shots. We just sort of see what the, what the, you know, the television screen allows us to see, but we got to see a lot of that earlier on. What were some of your memories, uh, or highlights that you can recall, um, as a younger person watching some of the greats play, um, this game that, that now you're a part of?
3: Well, uh there was a few uh, experiences I had as a as a junior. Um I was invited to participate in a pro am, the Westchester Classic Pro Am. They they selected uh the top uh male and the top female junior players from the area and they gave they gave us a, a spot on the pro am and I remember uh meeting Lon Hinkle and and um some of the some of the players at that tournament and you know, going from there and actually playing with the uh, touring pros, the you know it kind of piqued my interest in the game. But um, I can remember you know vividly just going to the tournament and and in the, in the qualifiers for the U.S. Open uh, or caddying and some right. of these things uh, as a kid and being around the pros and and really uh, found it quite interesting. But I used to when I would watch a tournament, I would go to the Westchester Classic for several days and I would literally walk eighteen holes following Ben Crenshaw or Johnny Miller, one of my favorite pros, and just watch them the whole eighteen. And I recognized early on that not every shot was perfect. They they hit Aaron golf shots, they, they missed putts, but they still scored and they were able to play the game and, and score you know, score low even with, with bad shots. So I recognized that it wasn't a game of perfect. It wasn't like we had to hit perfect right. golf shots to score. Seve Ballesteros, I mean, the way he played. And uh, I, I kind of took that, took that in, and, and I, I had the ability early on as a, as a junior to, to shoot low scores, and I didn't have a lot of formal instruction, as I said, but I had a very mm-hmm. good junior uh, career. Uh, as, a, as a non-member of any private country club, I was still able to get my game at that level. But I always had the scoring part in my mind. How do I you know, just get the ball in the hole? How do I, you know, shoot the lowest score? And my form was, was good, but I, I learned early on how to, uh, how to be creative around the greens. I spent a lot of time on the short game. I think that really helped me just to keep that in focus that it's all about score. It's not what it looks like. You just the, the number is the number, and, and it doesn't matter how you do it. Um, but I think that that really helped me um with the scoring and i and I find a lot of golfers have have the trouble scoring they're trying to be so perfect with their golf swings that they they can't right. uh, shoot a low score and by following let's say, so yeah, like you know like ben Crenshaw when you when watch when he was in his prime, you know he'd spray the ball around the golf course, but he'd shoot sixty eight you know with a short game and <laughs> and just being able to score. Right. so
1: yeah, and and that's so true. And that was, you know, a lot of my early memories too. You know, I watched, um, uh, you know, some of the great players. One of my favorite players as well um, to watch, believe it or not, was was Tom Kite. Um, you know, he just uh, certainly was a, certainly a, a straight ball hitter, but um, he just really knew how to work his short game. You know, he would get into whatever situation he might get into, and he knew how to recover very well. And he was one mm-hmm. of my earliest memories of a player that started playing with with really three or four wedges uh, in his golf bag. He was one of the first players. Now there certainly may have been right. others, but he was one of the first ones I remember um, hearing about on the PGA Tour. Uh, you know when they would talk about it and they say, well, you know, how many wedges have you got in your bag? And he'd say, well, I got four. And you know <laughs> at that time, you know, people were dumbfounded. Well, why would you carry four wedges? You don't need four wedges. But he obviously found a purpose for them and it worked for his game. Right. Um, I want to I want exactly. to move up to collegiate uh, golf. Yeah, I want to move up to collegiate golf, Chris, in you know, just a second. But mm-hmm. I want to ask you something first, just based on what you just talked about. Sure. Do you think that a lot of our amateur golfers out there, um, and, and I guess this has been a trend for the last ten to fifteen, maybe even twenty years, have put more emphasis on that pitcher perfect swing and not really learning how to play the game as you did, obviously earlier on.
3: Oh, I, I think without without a doubt that that was the trend, but. What I'm seeing today, though, with some of the the younger players that are on the tour, it's going the other way now. We're seeing players with, yeah. let's just say, non-conforming or or very unique styles of play. John Rahm, or I mean, even uh, Jordan Spieth with his with his move through the ball. It doesn't look uh, like Adam Scott or Tiger. So I think we're mm-hmm. seeing a little more creativity being allowed uh, uh, with the, with the golf swing. Justin Thomas and Dustin Johnson, the way, the way he swings it to the top and and the way he goes at it, which is a good thing. In my opinion, it's, it's allowing players to see that you can be super successful and be at the top of your game with your own style. And that's so important. But for a while there, uh, you know, there was a time period where everyone wanted to swing like Nick Faldo, you know, and everybody's looking at tiger swing as the model swing and that's changing. So it's kind of coming around the other way, which I think is good, Uh, good for the game. It's good for juniors. Um, you know there's more than one way to get it done and and that's something that we need to recognize especially from a coaching standpoint.
1: Yeah, well said. Um you're exactly right. And I, I was one of those, you know, um you know, watching players like Nick Faldo, I mean, certainly he has a phenomenal golf swing. Uh he rebuilt his swing um from a, an earlier time. He obviously struggled early on in the European Tour. Uh you know, they used to actually nickname him El Foldo because he just couldn't seem sure. to put it together. <laughs> um, rebuild right. the swing, but it worked for him. And the problem right. that I've seen over, you know, as a teacher professional as well is there was a, a generation of, of folks out there that just thought, okay, this is what I've got to do to, to be successful out in the golf course. I've got to rebuild my swing. It's got to be perfect. It's got to, you know, this has to be in this slot that has to be on, you know, this move mm-hmm. over here. And it just added to the frustration. I want to talk about something else. I mentioned we're going to get into collegiate golf, uh, and and this is something, too, that is not easy for for a lot of players out there. You played collegiate golf, obviously, at a high level, Division I, um, but golf is traditionally an individual game. Was it hard for you to adjust to now playing on a team uh, and share some of your journey during the stage of your golfing career as a collegiate player? What were some of the things that you learned as a collegiate player um, that maybe – Uh, helped you move to the next phase?
3: Well, definitely my experience uh, at East East Carolina um, really helped my game quite a bit. And as far as the team play, coming from being on a two-time state championship team in Connecticut, um, I had -hmm. a good feel for for team golf. And right when I went to East Carolina my first year, I was playing every tournament as a freshman. And, you know, the – what I always initially, just in all honesty, the, the, the first few years I was so concerned with being one of the, the top, either the number one or number two player uh, to keep my scholarship that that was the big motivating factor was you know to play well enough to be right you know the top guide uh, because I was on a full scholarship and that was always in the back of my mind. So from the team aspect, uh, our, we had a we had a really you know, good team, but we were playing against some of the best teams in the country. So it was great experience. And the uh, I didn't really have a hard time adjusting to it, but being that golf is such an individual game, I was always focused on, on my game and trying to get the most out of that because I didn't want to lose my, my spot on the the top five players, which I didn't, but the, you know, that was always kind of a driving factor, which was a good thing because it helped me to work on my game. But I was always comfortable in the team situation and with my teammates and What I also discovered, interestingly, through my collegiate career was I had the ability to help other players with their games as far as from a coaching standpoint.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. I was able to, you know, see what they were doing and give them suggestions just as we were practicing, you know, on a daily basis or with with the short game. So I had a a real knack for helping other players, which uh, I always noticed as well.
1: Well, and that's something that is important if you're going to play on a team as well. I mean, you, you're now there to be, uh, and I hate to use this term, but sort of almost like a cheerleader for your fellow players on the team, but also others um, that you're coming across. And, and you obviously developed an eye as a coach, um, not just as a player, but as a coach as well, uh, and which mm-hmm. obviously prompted you a, a little bit later on to, to make that move. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's interesting because, you know, you watch things like the Ryder Cup and, and even the President's Cup, and, you know, there's a lot of players that fit very well in a team format. Even though, you know, week in, week out on the PGA Tour, they're playing as individuals, um, they're able to step up and work in that team environment. But a player like Tiger Woods, as an individual, to uh, give you a good example, had a terrible Ryder Cup, um, uh, you know, history, if you will, was not right. able right. to play to, as right, well into, in a, he,
3: yeah, like when you right. compare it to his individual record, yeah, you're exactly right. Sure.
1: Yeah, so, you know, some folks out there just don't have that ability to, to navigate in both sense, and you obviously had uh, the ability to do both. Um, mm-hmm. In addition to a great collegiate career, um, Chris, you obviously have, as I mentioned earlier in the opening credits, uh, you've received some, some great acknowledgements as a professional B J Teacher of the Year in South Florida, well, uh, you plus too. you won some big sectional yeah, tournaments yeah, as well. Uh, you mm-hmm. won some sectional tournaments as a PGA professional. What did you learn as right. a player that's, ha- that's helped you in the teaching side of your career? What did you learn while you're out in the golf course playing uh, competitively that's now transitioned into your teaching side? What, what, you know, nuggets, if you will, have you brought with you from your playing career?
3: Well, early on, uh, and again, I was very fortunate to be given instruction by a top top pro, uh, William the late William A Mitchell. Where he instilled in me the the value of, of the fundamentals, and it was then to Jim McLean and and, and some of the other pros that I was fortunate to, to receive some advice from. Um, it was always the trying to be perfect with the basic fundamentals of the of the swing, and then you you really get the the feel for the cause and effect of what you know what's causing things to happen, uh, good or bad. But also you get a good feel for what really holds up under pressure. And I, and I knew early on, you know, just for example, on the first tee of any tournament, I always had no no problem hitting a good shot right off the first tee, even if I was nervous. And then I realized what well, my swing fundamentals are obviously really good because I'm really nervous, but I'm still hitting the ball really well. And that connected right. with me early on that I knew what was holding up and, and what worked under the gun. So, you know, as a, as a, as a player, you learn what works, then you can then transfer that to the student because you have that experience. And and some players will, might have what appears to be a really good swing, but they don't really have a, a, a total mastery of the, of the fundamentals, and it doesn't hold up under the gun. And yep. golfers that have gotten to a certain level and have some uh, playing will, will realize what works and what doesn't. And so it really kind of channels your – your focus on on what you need to be teaching when and when you're working with players because without certain fundamentals you know things can fall apart real fast. So and I was fortunate to be taught correctly and, and, and I that's one of the pillars of, of my teaching philosophy is to try to work that into the players I'm working with on the lesson T on a daily basis.
1: What do you enjoy most um, I guess there there is no perfect day, but if you could paint a perfect day out in the lesson tee, um, what would that be? What would that entail
3: for you? A perfect day in the lesson T? Well, it's it's yeah. hard to say. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and you know, we enjoy what we do, and I look forward uh, to going into the club every every single day. is uh, mm. It's really a, a pleasure working with the members and guests and the students I work with. To come in to see me. It's uh, it's very rewarding. So, you know, I I I think you know a perfect day is is uh, you know getting a chance to to help players at, at different skill levels and just seeing that your efforts are, are, are noticed and and that people are enjoying the game more. And I think that's that's the biggest uh, thing we get out of it. And Great of course, answer. Good I love that. When we have, when we have... sure,
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't get any better than South Florida. Um just to remind everybody, of course, uh, he's the go- head golf pro at uh, Boca West Country Club in South Florida. Um we'll give you a little more particulars uh, a little bit later on in the broadcast, but um great answer, Chris. I like that. Um well, thank you. You know, you're welcome. Here's a um you know, here's something that uh, I'm sure that you have have had to deal with as a player uh and obviously have to deal with now as a as a teach professional and a coach. Um, but a lot of amateurs have a hard time with setting goals. You had to, I'm sure, Mm -hmm. set goals uh, as a player um, in order to be successful out in the golf course. Walk us through maybe some of the steps that you take to help some of your students or members at the club uh, in in not only setting goals, but helping them to execute a a, a game plan.
3: Well, when it comes to goals, you know, I look at the students that come to see me, whether, you know, the the members, their guests, you know, I, I coach players uh, from all over the country, and actually from different countries, will come in to see me, which is which is great. Um, you know, Boca West is, is a large facility. There's four courses. It's the number one rated club mm-hmm. in Florida. We have an amazing facility there, and it's it's really. I hope you know, ho- hoping it, uh, can come down to Boca sometime, and and I'll show you around, and we'll get to play the courses. But it's just fan- it's a fantastic facility. With I mean, it's, not, it's no surprise to me that it's rated number one in the state of Florida and probably the country. I mean, it's, uh, it's an amazing place. And, you know, when, when golfers come to see me, there's always a little bit of pressure. Um, sure. You know, because if there's someone's coming way out of the way to see me, that that's, you know, a compliment, but it's also a little bit of pressure, just like when the chairman of the board comes out for a lesson, that's pressure or the golf chairman or, you know, a, a new member at the club, you know, it's always a little different situation that we're dealing with. Um, but that makes it fun. But I look at, the goal setting that if you have a new golfer, compare that to an intermediate player and an advanced player at some point early on in the first lesson, I need to get a feel for what their goals are. You know, why are they coming to see me? What are they looking to get from this? You know, for example, a new golfer, brand new golfer, their goal may be just to get the ball moving, get it airborne. Whereas, you know, an advanced golfer or an aspiring player or, or professional golfer, when I work with pros, their goals are totally different. So it it Mm -hmm. really depends on the, on the level of the player, but at some point in, in, in the first lesson, I'm going to get a good idea of what their goals are. And then I can communicate to them what the best plan of attack is to, to achieve those goals. Um, Sometimes it's it's a new golfer. I may have to kind of lead them down that path and say, here's a realistic goal for you, you know, today or tomorrow. And kind of walk them through that, whereas the more skillful player is already going to have an idea of what their goals are, and then I need to create a lesson program that's a little more detailed for that player. You know, the majority of golfers that we deal with would fall more into the intermediate, you know, you know sophisticated player who is, is, has been playing for a while, and their goal might just be to improve one segment of their game, you know, their short game or their driving. So, right. I think the, the skill level is something we have to take into consideration.
1: Well, and you touched on something that, that uh, I was actually going to be my next question in part of this, uh, and that is uh, ensuring that the goals, uh, at, regardless of what level, but particularly for, for some of our, our high-handicap golfers out there uh, or new golfers to the game, that their goals that they're setting are realistic. Um, right. I, I'm sure you've experienced this many, many times over the years, uh, how many times somebody comes with very unrealistic goals, um, and, and just are not really looking honestly at themselves. And,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
1: it's sort of a, a balancing act as a professional for us to say, well, you know, no offense, but you're not going to make it on the PGA tour anytime soon. Um, Right. Uh, you know, and, and we often see that with, with a lot of junior, you know, parents bring their juniors and say, well, you know, he's going to be the next Tiger Woods or he's going to be the next Jack Nicklaus or whoever. Um, And, you know, little Johnny over here it just it, it is <laughs> far furthest away that you could ever. And I know you've seen it. I mean, we we laugh about it, but I, I know you've seen it. What do you do right. to, to, you know, on one hand, not offend the individual that you're dealing with or parents, if it's in the case of a junior, um, but mm-hmm. in, ensure that. They're being truthful to themselves. What, what sort of co- help me through the conversation that you might have with them to uh, to initiate that?
3: Well, with with the let's just take the example of the country club player uh, who's uh, not very athletic, who's expecting to hit the ball, you know, 250 plus yards. You know, I might explain yep. to them, okay, let's take take me out to the the baseball stadium, and we'll go down to the Marlins Stadium and put me on the mound, and I'm I'm a good athlete. And give me a baseball and see if i can throw it at 95 miles an hour i could i could have all the, the best coaching in the world i'll never get to throw a fastball you know at that speed at that velocity so it's not realistic right. for me to go down to the the, the, the marlin stadium and expect to pitch as fast as the major league pitchers throwing the ball it's just like the, mm-hmm. the student coming to me saying hey i want to hit a golf ball as far as you hit the golf ball or the, what i see you know a uh, Justin Johnson doing, I said, well, you can't ever get to that speed. It's just physically not going to happen. Just like I'm not going to be able to serve a tennis ball like Rafael Nadal. That's not going to happen. Right. So when they start to look at it that way, they start to go, okay, well, you know, you're the major league, you know, pitcher, and I'm not going to be able to, to do what you do. So they kind of then relate, okay, I see what you're saying. In golf, I maybe, you know, more realistically look to hit a drive 200 yards, not 250. So, the, you know, when mm-hmm. they – also get an idea of the physics involved in it and what creates the energy that propels the, the, the golf ball and that projectile, 250 plus yards. Well, if, if they see what their swing speed is, they can then kind of get an idea that their swing speed will never be 115, 20 miles an hour. So it's, it can't get the ball to go that far. So, you know, that's one way to do it. When it comes to the junior golfer with the parents, it's a little different situation because obviously the junior golfer has a lot of time on their side to develop their skills, but the conversation might be more towards the time factor. Okay, well, if if little Billy wants to get to this level with his golf, he's going to need to work on his game this much and, and have some coaching and give it some time because it's a process. So that discussion would take place. And I also like to have the parents involved as far as encouraging the junior, but let them know early on that, that from the coaching standpoint that, you know, when it comes to the, the, the lessons and the information that's going to be given out, they're, they're best listening to someone like myself uh, and, and have right. parents more in the, you know, the role of encouraging the player, but you know, junior golfers, I've seen players that, you know, one junior golfer I worked with recently, a high school player, his best score was you know, 105 in a tournament. And, you know, after working with this junior for a year, he got his his best tournament score down to 77 in one year. So that junior improved quite a bit. So when I first started working with him, if someone was observing how this, this junior was playing, they would say he's got no chance at a collegiate golf. Right. Whereas now in his senior year, he can shoot in the seventies. Well, he, you know, with a little more improvement, uh, he may make a golf team collegiately. So, it it can happen depending on the junior things can happen pretty quickly, especially when, when Mm -hmm. players are coached properly, the improvement can be uh, pretty astounding, but it just depends on their motivation. If they have time to practice the right way. Um, But, you know, I I would never tell a junior golfer or their parent, Hey, you, you, you know, your, your son or daughter will never make that because, you know, we don't know this, you know, it's just, the conversation's got to be a little more towards. Uh, this is what it's going to take if you if you do this and you put the, the time into it, you can you can see these uh, improvements and and who knows? Um, and there's plenty of stories of of guys that that really weren't standouts in high school and then they end up having a pro career. So I mean, we yeah. don't really know uh, what's going to happen in the future because. You know, the best we can do is, is lead them in the right direction and, and show them the right stuff.
1: Yeah, and you're exactly right. You know, I think really one of the things, that going back to, to some of the juniors that you're talking about, the conversation really has to start with the junior. I mean, it's great that the parents are bringing them to the door, and it's like the old leading the horse to water. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, you you can't make the student drink the water Uh, If it's not what they want, if it's their parents ideas or dreams or goals, um, then, you know, and this is one of the things that I think that the dangers that happens in junior golf is a lot of times, you know, over rambunctious parents decide that they want to have little Johnny, uh, you know, get a scholarship at the, you know, at, at the university. So they figure, well, the golf team is the way to go. So they shuffle them into lessons and, and all this kind of stuff. So, obviously, it's important that you talk to the students as well, away from the parents and say, is this something that you really want? Um, mm-hmm. You know, is this something that is, is sort of a, a seed, if you will, that's grown inside of you that you have some passion about? Or is this really something that you're doing, uh, you know, to, um, uh, to appeal, which obviously every kid does to a certain degree, but uh, to appease your, your parents? Because uh, there's no worse misery for a child, and even for a coach or right. instructor, to know that you've got a student that you're working with that really doesn't want to be there.
3: Would, would that Correct. be pretty accurate? I, mean, I think Ted, you're, you're real accurate with that because look at the time we spent uh, on ranges as junior golfers sitting, you know, hitting balls, beating balls, putting time in on, on the short game area, putting greens. I mean, hour after hour. And if you don't enjoy it, if you don't have those aspirations, it's not going to happen. So you're, you're a hundred percent right that, you know, the, um, the junior, you know, to really excel needs to, see success they need to have success at whatever level um if they if they realize that they're good at it they're going to keep pursuing it and and that's where kind of the the passion comes in someone can be passionate about it but not really be good at it and there's kind of a difference there so i think when juniors see that they can do it and do it well and they and they know that they're they're good at it um it it makes it a little easier to, to put the time in to really develop the skills to to further the career, I think you know, and, player, and
1: you're exactly right.
3: Go ahead. No, I'm just saying when 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 the junior or the uh, you know the tournament player sees some success, that's that's a big uh, motivating factor. When, when you know they can look at and say, well, okay, I'm good at this, and and that's going to uh, help me, uh, you know, put the time into it. Just being passionate about it doesn't, yeah, doesn't necessarily you
1: know. right. And lots of kids might come with, with um, some passion in the beginning, but when they realize, you know, the hard work that's going to uh, have to be, you know, going in behind it in order to get to that level, um, suddenly that passion drifts uh, and reality sets in. So this is why that conversation as to, uh, and really the the most important question is is why are you here? Why you know why do you want to play? What right. is it about golf? Um, you know, and, and that conversation really has to take place first, and, and you're exactly right. Um, Chris, I want to move on to a, a topic that I think is important to discuss, and I'm just curious as to, to your thoughts and views, and, and and again, obviously, there's no right or, or wrong answers here, but, um, you know, there, there's been here for the last uh, at least a decade or more, there is really a new way of reaching students, uh, everything from online video lessons to social media, et cetera, and I'm going to throw in here... Um, because I've talked about it many times on the show, especially some of the earlier shows, um, a lot of the technology that's available out there, um, both hardware and software and, and game improvement and so forth. What are some of the pros and cons that you found uh, using some of the tools that are out there? Uh, obviously, I think there's pros and cons. What were some of the, the positives, I guess, and what were some of the things that, that, you know, I won't say bother you, but sometimes you have concerns about that that maybe the industry is relying too much on certain things?
3: Well, well, Ted, the technology is great for two things, primarily the, to kind of sp- spike the interest of the student early on, let's say a, a younger player is coming out and they see the technology and they see the track man, they see the, the launch monitors, yep. they, they go on simulators or they look at the, the app on their phone or, or whatever it is. They find that interesting. Mm-hmm and it it gets them interested in golf and to put some time into it. That's a positive from a coaching standpoint. Like when I have access to technology, like we have at the club and we have really good, you know, the technology, I use that just like a doctor would use it with my students. But I, but I don't Mm -hmm. use it with every single student. Right. From an expert, from an expert's opinion, when you look at the technology And that can help you translate something to the student. You kind of pick, you know, cherry pick what information you want to give to the student or show them certain things but don't show them other things. Having that available is very good to then help the student. But the student, Mm -hmm. you know, can benefit from technology because it can make it more interesting, gets the juices flowing, and they want to get out there and play golf. Hey, that's great. Just like I'm a Cobra Puma brand ambassador and and the F7 Plus driver I have has the computer chip and the the grip and and you can link it with the app on your phone and it charts every drive hey that's great you know having that on your equipment Mm -hmm. just like they're putting it on tennis rackets now they're having the same technology on a tennis racket that's going to be able to tell a tennis player how they're serving the spin of the ball and so on on a tennis racket i mean who would believe so the the technology is great there it can be devastatingly bad for players if they don't know how to interpret the information when they just start looking at all that stuff and they watch every YouTube video and they try to, you know, get a different lesson from, you know, from s- someplace yeah. somewhere and, and send their video into to be you know, I did a lot of video analysis with swing fix, which was a great platform, but I had a lot of swing fix students come to work with me in person and, and the experience they had with me in person was better than the, the video lesson just from right. watching, you know, a couple of swings, I could give them an, an analysis, but working with them in person is so You know, I love technology. I want to know what's out there and what the current technology is. But uh, but I also know that it's a double-edged sword. It can also really hurt a student because they don't know how to interpret the information correctly. It's just like someone going to a doctor. They have to recognize the doctor knows way more about this stuff than they do, and they just need to rely on what the doctor tells them. And from an instructor standpoint, we need to to kind of take take the rudder of the ship and guide it. Don't let the student say, hey, I'm gonna just spend the whole hour analysing my swing to death based on the technology. Now again, Ted, the I think the technology is good, just like new equipment gets the juices flowing when you get a new set of clubs. If it gets people mm-hmm. out there on the golf course, I'm I'm all for it. Get them interested in it. Um, but I also think we need to educate the the, the general public on how do you use that information and when not to even look at it um, to enjoy the game. we got to you know, hit the golf ball and, and hit good golf shots. And that's just not going to be found from analyzing a golf swing to death based on a, you know, a swing app.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I think, and, and this is the conversation that we've had uh, both here as a, as a general rule with some of the guests that I've had on the show. And, and obviously we've talked about it uh, in a little bit more length on, on a number of shows actually on coach's corner. And one of the things that, and I guess the dangers that I found, and unfortunately, I think the industry, even though there is new technology coming out and even better technology coming out, I think the the industry as a whole is recognizing that there has to be a balance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's great to get the stats. It's great to have the figures and, and, and see all the video and so forth. But then, you know, it has to be interpreted and has to be um, even some of it withheld a little bit if it's going to be. Uh, overburdening uh, the student i 'll give you an example Correct. Um, you know you 've got the student on on uh, you know flight scope you 're getting all the facts and the figures then you 're you know analyzing the videos all day long you 're you know throwing out all these different numbers at them all the time to the average student uh, and i 'm certainly not talking to professionals i mean they're di- a different f- a kettle of fish if you will, but for a lot of the students mm-hmm. out there it 's very overwhelming and it 's right. actually turned off. A lot of people. It's exciting, like you said, gets the juices flowing in the beginning. But then after a while, their eyes are rolling in the back of their head like a slot machine because they Mm -hmm. don't understand. (laughs) So there's has to be a balancing act between the the, right. I mean, you know, I'm right uh, between the 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 coach and teacher and the student. They have to understand that there is a time and a place when this information is going to serve them right. Uh, And then there's going to be a time and a place where it's not necessary. And that's really up to us as the coaches and teacher professionals to sort of find that balance act. You're exactly right.
3: And same thing. Yeah, same. What I was going to say is early on in my, that's kind of relating to that, is that early on in my teaching career, um, I, I learned early on that great teachers very often didn't do a lot of talking in the golf lessons, but they mm-hmm. would have a lot of success with their students because what they said at the right time or, or how they, they, they worded it or what they showed the student, let's say, really got it across and the student made more progress than the student that went for a lesson and the pro talked nonstop for an hour straight, giving them information, and then the student leaves going, "Wow, I, you know, I talked a lot, but I really didn't, didn't learn anything or didn't, didn't get any better. Or, um, you know, information has to be accurate. And that's mm-hmm. what students need. And, and I think you're right in that if it's, if it's too much, it's just information overload. Just, just like um, yep. what we can pull up on the phone and you look at you know how to, how to hit a pitch shot on YouTube and there's you know, thousands of videos from everybody on how to hit a pitch shot. Well, I would rather have the students spend time out there at a short range and learn the correct way to do it and get a feel for it and be able to, to pull off that shot more so than just trying to, to learn it by you know, watching a video. Or, or analyzing numbers at, at the superstore, you know, in, at an indoor computer, um, that's not the best way to learn golf. And the bottom line with players is they you know, they want to get an idea of how to get the golf ball doing what they want it to do and, and enjoy the game. And, and technology is great if it's used the right way. So I think you're a hundred percent correct. And, you know, it's good to have it. And, and we don't want to turn people off from the game. We want more people enjoying the game and, and one of the things yeah. I enjoy most about teaching is, is, is having a student say, Hey, you know, I really understand what you're saying now. And, and I really feel like I know what I'm doing when I'm swinging, you know, let's say it's an intermediate player and they say, you know, I finally get how and why the ball is doing what it's doing. And, you know, that's a good feeling. And and we take it for granted when we play, we just hit shots and, and, and we know where the, well, for the most part, we know where the ball is going, but for for the recreational player, when they start to discover some of these things, and again, getting back to how important the fundamentals are, these are based on certain fundamentals. When they get a handle of those things, then they kind of get what really makes the game fun. And just having the latest equipment with you know all the data that's out there doesn't mean they're going to enjoy the game more. You know, over time they're going to get frustrated. The guy who started P X G, Parsons. You know, he got tired of spending $250,000 on equipment every year, so he started his own company and trying to put out, you know, what he Mm -hmm. thinks is the best equipment out there. Well, you know, he had the means to buy all that equipment, but he was getting frustrated that he was trying all these clubs, and and he didn't, you know, get to where he wanted to go. Well, golfers can can buy all the equipment they want, and they can get all the technology. That doesn't mean they're going to play a better game. Just like with equipment now, there's kind of a trend towards more of a traditional golf club uh, than something, you know, not everybody needs a super game improvement club nowadays. They're starting to recognize, well, maybe that's not for everybody because, you know, people are different. So it's kind of like a cyclical movement with equipment that, you know, I see more people going to a bladed club right now than, you know, wasn't Mm -hmm. that long ago where everybody thought they needed the most perimeter weight they could possibly get on on a golf club. And, and we're kind of seeing that go the other way. So that's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, and I obviously boil that down to effective marketing. I mean, you know, there, there's no doubt this was a direction that the industry was taking, and it was obviously led um, a lot by the manufacturing sector, um, really to you know, to what they thought was going to help a lot of the students. And it, and it certainly has for, for many out there. Um, but it, I think it's like anything. It, it, you have to find a balancing act. And I think one of the dangers... Um, in any industry, is doesn't necessarily be just the golf industry, but any industry is that sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for. You know, if you try to move a trend or, right. or create a trend in one direction uh, it might serve you well for a period of time, but um, it, it all boils down to the basics. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you can be, and we talked about this in the coach's corner earlier tonight, you can be the best ball striker on the planet, but if you don't understand how to play the game and navigate around the golf course, it's not going to add Mm -hmm. up to a hill of beans because there's a lot of great ball strikers on, on all of the tours. um, But not Mm -hmm. everybody's winning each and every week. So why is that? And that's because some people know how to play to their advantage, uh, better than say the other person. And that's really what it's about.
3: Yeah, you're 100% right. Look at some of the players that are winning. And you look at the way yep. they're swinging, and you go, "Wow, this is this is not you know what the textbook says." Or, you know, they're putting a certain mm-hmm. way. Hey, that's not what the textbook says, but they're winning. They know how to score, and and I think you know the guys like Ricky Fowler, who has, I mean, he has <coughs> really good form. But <coughs> when you look me. at Ricky, mm-hmm. uh, Sergio, I mean, and and uh, Justin Rose and these guys, they really know how to score. I mean, they they have uh, that ability. Uh, To to just get the ball in the hole, and and, uh, you know they're long, but they're not the longest hitters on the tour. But they're really you know getting the job done because of their ability to score in the short game. So um, I think we need to communicate that to students. It's not just you know a power game. Um, You know distance is important, but when you're when you're playing, you got to know how to score, and that's where you got to you know that's that's you know where the evaluation comes in. You know I spend a lot more time evaluating an advanced player than I would a brand new golfer. I mean, it doesn't take that much right. to evaluate someone who's never played before. You know exactly what you're going to show them. Uh, someone comes mm-hmm. out to the lesson team who's already on the PGA tour or the, it's, you know, a top collegiate player, you know, they want to get they fine tune their game as a pro. We have to do a little more in-depth analysis and evaluate all areas of their game to try to, to get them to, improve whatever area they need so that's where you know the students are different uh it's almost the exact opposite when you look at um you know uh, equipment you know what type of equi- little tweaks to equipment could could make a difference for a pro you know one degree in a driver compare that to somebody who's never really played or just out there you know a high school kid taking a, a driver in their hand doesn't really matter what the loft is on the driver right now because they're at, a, at that level so things kind of go in yep. reverse
1: Yeah. Well said. Um, And and you're exactly right, Chris. You know, we've talked about this many, many times on the program over the years and you know, it it just, it boils down to really um, you know, what a player is willing to do while they're out on the golf course. You know, they're going to look at the situation. They're going to look at the scenario and, and they need to have, the ability to be creative while they're out there and you can line them up with the best equipment and the best golf balls and even the best instruction. Um, But once they're out in the golf course, they're on their own. They can certainly draw from their experiences and and the information they've learned, but essentially they're on their own. And, you know, this is where a little ingenuity comes in. And and this is why you see some players – stand out more so than others. And, um, you know, I, I'm like you, I love the equipment. I think that the technology is, is interesting. And even social media, I think it's, it's great to have a lot of viewpoints, and a lot of opinions out there. Um, but there's some dangers too. And I think we have to be uh, cognizant of, of both sides of the coin, if you will. Um, Chris, I want to take this opportunity to thank you for, uh, I hate to say this, but our time is actually coming to an end. Wow, it's I been an interesting, that. Uh, that was- yeah, it, it well, you know, hey, we're talking about something we both enjoy and uh, you know, you it. It, it's um, you know, you get two two guys together talking about something they love and passionate about, it uh, it's amazing how time flies. It's when you do the stuff you don't like that it seems to drag on forever. So, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's uh that that speaks volumes. But Chris, I want to take this opportunity to a couple things. First off, I want to thank you very much for for joining me tonight on Golf Talk My Live. Pleasure. It's been an honor and a pleasure uh having you here as well and as i mentioned you, to you uh, earlier today when you re- yeah when you reached out um after the show i'm going to send you uh the coach's corner updated schedule so you can see what dates are available and and so forth and uh, i think you'd uh, be a great asset to uh, the coach's corner team as uh, quite a few of them now uh, from all over the united states uh on the panel thank discussions you, and i you. think you'd have some great uh, thoughts and input so so please feel free to to join there um but i want to give you just a couple of minutes here if you want to let the folks know if they want to reach out to you how they can uh, get in touch with you or how they can learn more about uh uh what you have to offer here in this great game
3: well thank you ted very much uh for the invite and i look forward to, to doing the coach's corner um it's been a lot of fun and and uh congrats on the show again the, uh, the best Thank way for, for people to contact me is they can, they can call 833-PGA-GOLF. That, that will give them a direct line to me at 833-PGA-GOLF. They can go to my website, which is uh, christianchaya.com. Um, so the spelling is C-H-R-E-S-T-I-A-N, and my last name is C-Z-A-J-A.com. Um, or they can call Boca West Country Club. Uh, I'm here in, uh, in Boca year-round. And it's a, we have a fantastic facility, four courses, and um, uh, I'm easy to, to reach there, and I'm always accessible. The, um, I'm on LinkedIn. If they want to check me out on LinkedIn, uh, but again, they can call 833 PGA Golf, and um, or go right to my website at ChristianChaya.com. And 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 also for for the listeners, if they have any questions and and, and they want to run it by me uh, on anything, uh, they they can feel free to. Uh, Contact me, especially through my website, and I'll get back to them there. Um, but again, eight three three PGA Golf, and uh, hope hope to hear from everybody. And uh, Boca is a, is a great uh, Palm Beach County is a real golf mecca, as you know. There's so many mm-hmm. uh, pros and, and living in this area that uh, uh, it's just great. Uh, it's a gr- great year-round golf here. It's um, it's really really good. Our section, South Florida section, is doing great. Junior golf is exploding with the the junior league down here in south florida so the section's doing an outstanding job there uh so it's it's really uh it, it, it's a fun fun area to be, to work in um i see a lot of the uh, tour pros around town i mean we see uh you know i saw dustin at starbucks the other morning see, you know ricky fowler wow. we they're all you know, see all the, you know the, the, uh, the top clubs down here there are so many tour pros and um, but yeah, check it out. And, and again, they're welcome to come see me at Boca West. And, um, I want to thank you again, Ted, for having me on the show. It's been a lot of fun.
1: I appreciate it, Chris. Uh, thank you as always. And like I said, I'll be in touch with the schedule and, and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can work you in. I, I think you'd be a great asset to the show. Um, I, again, Chris, thank you for joining me tonight on, on golf talk live. It's been My an pleasure. honor and a pleasure for me as well. I always enjoy uh, exchanging, uh, some thoughts and I as you know um, my guests uh, always feel that they um, have an opportunity here on the show to to come and share their information with my audience uh, which is of course global and that's uh, one of the beauties of doing this particular type of format is anybody from all over the, the world can pick up on this so um, thank you for sharing that's that Chris great. and uh I, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna take you up on your offer. I think I might just make it down to, to Boca one of these days, real soon, and uh, we'll get together and you can uh, show me some of the uh, the great golfing that uh, that's going down in your that'd neck be, of the woods. But Chris, thank be, you very much.
3: Thank you. Ted.
1: Yeah, have a great. Not a problem. Have a great. Uh, ho- yeah, all the best, and uh, we'll talk to you real soon. Cheers. All right. Bye bye. All right, that was my very special guest this evening, uh, Chris Chaya, PGA Professional and PGA Teacher of the Year in South Florida at the uh, Boca West Country Club. You can find him there. And uh, just a great a uh, great guy. And uh, as I said, I'm going to try and get him on the Coach's Corner panel uh, here in the upcoming months, so hopefully he'll be able to jump in on a few of the uh, panel discussions. I think he'll have a good time. Um, and also, uh, speaking of which, thank you again to John Decker and Clint Wright uh, for doing a phenomenal job uh, on tonight's Coach's Corner panel. Uh, always enjoy their input. Uh, a couple of great professionals, and I enjoy all of them. Actually, uh, all of the uh, uh, men and ladies that uh, come on the Coaches Corner panel, we have a good time every every uh, week on the on the show. Uh, just a couple of quick thank yous. Uh, first off, I want to thank you, uh, the listeners, for faithfully tuning in, uh, literally from all over the world, uh, tuning into Golf Talk Live each and every week. And I say this uh, then, and I'll say this again. I have a great amount of pleasure and enjoyment of having a a number of highly talented coaches, teach professionals, authors, and even some entrepreneurs stop by. And it's really through their participation and guest appearances that have helped to make Golf Talk Live a first-class show. Uh, In addition, I want to thank some special uh, sponsors and supporters of the show, Mr. Jonathan Laird from South Coast Golf Guide. Go to southcoastgolfguide.com. Great uh, publication in the southeastern part of the United States. A lot of great courses from literally from Texas right over here into the northwest part of Florida and all states in between. Uh, Meredith Kirk uh, from Meredith Kirk Golf. Go to meredithkirk.com. It's her website. Thank you, Meredith, for all of your uh, continued support of the show as well. Nikki and Tiffany Litherland, a great couple. Nikki, of course, is a golf professional and his lovely wife, Tiffany, have always been uh, big supporters of the show. So thank you guys uh, for all of your help in spreading the word of the program over the years. Uh, My good friend, Mr. Bernie Pinder, Uh, From up in the Michigan area, uh, an owner and founder of Ontic Golf, a a great line of custom putters. Uh, Go to onticgolf.com, that's O-N-T-I-C, golf.com, to check out uh, some of the latest and greatest uh, products that he has available there. Uh, Sean Kelly, the owner of linkedgolfers.com, a great social media platform that he started Linked Golfers on LinkedIn, which is the largest golf group, taking that out to his own platform. Uh, still does the uh, Linked Golfers uh, group uh, on LinkedIn, but uh, has taken it uh, a little step further on the, the other uh, parts of the social media uh, ladder, if you will, and platform. So go to linkedgolfers.com and check out some of the great things that he's got uh, on his site there. And last but not least, certainly uh, Peter Doyle. Uh, Great uh, teacher professional and great uh, club fitter as well uh, from Doyle Golf Solutions over in Ireland. Thank you, my good friend and buddy, for all of your continued support over the year. And uh, again, I can't thank you all enough uh, for keeping the show going and and, uh, tuning in and and supporting uh, the program. Keep up uh, listening to the show. Hopefully, you'll learn something each and every week, uh, not only on the Coach's Corner panel, but with some of my great guests as well, like tonight. Um, So on behalf of all of my guests and all of you out there, Thank you. God bless everybody. And uh, our, in our thoughts and prayers to all of the folks out in Texas in Louisiana, and Louisiana and other parts surrounding, uh, Godspeed and, and uh, let's get everything uh, moving as quick as we can to get people back. And, and, uh, and their families and loved ones. And uh, please uh, show your support, if, as I said earlier, if you can. Uh, contact your local church, uh, local government offices, and find out how you can uh, participate either financially or even maybe volunteer Uh, to help some of the folks that are struggling out there in that area right now uh, as a result of some of the, uh, the recent devastation with uh, hurricane Harvey and keep our fingers crossed and in our prayers that uh, the next uh, wave of storms, uh, I understand there's another uh, tropical depression coming through the uh, potentially in the area uh, tropical storm uh, Irma, I believe is the next one. Hopefully it'll miss uh, the U S and just stay out in the Atlantic and fizzle out. But uh, our thoughts and prayers there that, uh, Um, that 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 happens but on that note everybody have a great labor day weekend coming up here in just a day and uh, god bless everybody and i will see you next week right here on golf talk live thanks everybody